Hello and welcome to the MISAM podcast, in which we talk to MISAM members and their associates about their recent or ongoing research into the medieval world of Central Europe. I'm Karen Culver, and today it is my pleasure to meet Jana Gajdashova to talk about her research into the world of the 14th and 15th century Bohemian architects and master builders, focusing on Peter Parler and Lawrence Leckler. These were men who perhaps in today's time, we would describe them as members of an international elite professional class. Jana completed her PhD at Birkbeck College, Uni London in 2015, supervised by Zoe Apicic. Her research then focused on the Charge Bridge in Prague. She has published articles in the Journal of British Archaeological Association, 2016, Decorated, Revisited, English Architectural Style in Context, 1250 to 1400, published in 2017. Lateness and Modernity in Medieval Architecture, published 2023. And Jester, published in Autumn 2022. Jana is currently a medieval specialist at Sam Fogg, an international art dealer in London, and she teaches a variety of courses for the Bartlett School of Architecture and the Victoria and Albert Museum. Jana, welcome to the MISAM podcast. Thank you. I would like to start off by looking at the medieval construction industry and the role of the architect within it. How local or international was it? And was the entire building industry dependent on noble patrons or was there a broader clientele? It's a really interesting question, that one. Um, And I was trying to figure out a a sort of a simplistic answer for it, but I really think that it depends on the place and the time. So when we think about the Middle Ages and we think in terms of the earlier periods, um, I think we get more local builders. So even there, even as early as 1100, we have evidence for the movement of certain talented masons. One example that springs to mind immediately is this famous pilgrimage route to Santiago de Compostela. And even there, we can see similarities between places in southern France, places like Saint-Cernin in Toulouse, and places in northwestern Spain in Santiago de Compostela. And these similarities are so close that they tell us that there are certain masons that must have been working on both of these sites. You know, it really communicates, you know, what was happening, that it was quite international, even as early as that. Um, And then when we come into the later Middle Ages, which is the period that we will be discussing a little bit more today, we can see wealthy patrons who, if they like something in another land, they can bring a master mason, a kind of a star architect from another country back home with them. And then later still, architects even get commissions themselves to do projects further afield. And then I suppose when we break that down, and if we think about the other masons that are working alongside these star architects on a project, because you know there, it's not just one architect that's doing all the work, he's got a large group um, in his workshop. Um, And the trend there, I think, is that usually this group is composed of both local and international masons. So for example, in Prague Cathedral, we have these accounts for 
a couple of years. And so we have names and places where some of the other Masons, apart from the parlors, come from. And we can see that some are local, but that some are also coming from Germany, from Poland, um, as far as France even. And then to answer the second part of the question, I think in terms of patrons, the projects definitely are dependent on patrons, but it's not just noble patrons that we are talking about. I mean, obviously there are noble patrons like Charles IV, who is the patron of Prague Cathedral, but he is almost like an anomaly. You don't tend to get one person paying for an entire church. You usually get a group of people. And what's interesting in the Holy Roman Empire is that you also there get a lot of independent city-states, like those along southern Germany. And so in these independent city-states, you get wealthy citizens that are bringing their money together, if you will, and paying for a church. And that church, in turn, becomes a kind of a symbol of civic pride. You mentioned Peter Parler, 1333 to 1399. He was the architect and master builder who did the south transept of Prague Cathedral. He came from a family of craftsmen, stone carvers and builders. He was obviously highly educated, skilled, and not only in designing buildings, but presumably in managing client relations and managing highly complex construction projects which we would now have a whole plethora of different professions managing. What sort of employment terms, what terms and conditions would a top architect builder like Peter Parler enjoy? And did he have one or several projects going on at the same time? Yeah, I mean, I I really wish we had a contract to really know. Um, But I think we can build a picture of Parler's privileges, if you will, through some of the documents and and also through some of the visual evidence that we have from the cathedral. Um, So to answer the second question first, I think, yes, he was definitely, you know, he was court architect. So we know that he worked on several projects in the city for the emperor, for example, the Charles Bridge. Um, He also has a bust in the cathedral and above that bust, there's an inscription which tells us several of the projects that that he was working on. So he was supervising several projects at the same time. We also know that he was an elected city official. He was also buried in the cathedral. So not only does he have his bust in the Triforium um, alongside the emperor and his close family and the archbishops, um, he's also buried in the cathedral, which is a huge privilege. And we also know that he had an enormous wage. So especially when you compare this wage to other stonemasons that are working alongside him. And um, this wage, interestingly, just from documents that do survive from these accounts from the cathedral, we know that this wage was never withheld from him. Even if there was a shortage of work, when some stonemasons would not have been paid, Peter Parler was always paid. Um, And he also, on top of that wage, received bonuses for special projects that he did. So for example, we know the amount that he was paid to carve a tomb monument for one of the Przemyslid kings. So Charles IV was creating this retrospective program of effigies. And one of these, um, we have documents that uh, Peter Parler executed and was paid for. And just this bonus alone was more than an average stonemason would get paid in the entire year. 
So that gives you a picture of his status compared to some of the other Masons that are working alongside him. Did Peter Parler actually carve the stone monument himself? Or did he design it and have someone else carve it for him? It's an interesting question, and we don't know, but I I believe that he, he did. Because I think the um, documents, I'd have to go th- over them again, but I think they're quite explicit that he is the person carving that monument. And you can also just see that that monument is carved to, not to a degree, but just the, the quality of it is quite different from some of the other work that you can see. And um, it's, yeah, quite a special thing. And I think most people do believe that it was Peter Parler that carved that particular monument. But it must have taken ages. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking about working 10 hours a day, seven days a week, trying to fit it all in. I wonder how he did it. Yeah, yeah. But I think, I mean, you do have stonemasons that work on cathedrals now, um, and they do get projects like that. Now, what they're working with in Prague is limestone. And limestone is not as difficult to carve as something like marble, for example. So you can get through it rather, not rather quickly, but you can get through it. So I think you can get a a two monument like that carved in a few months' time. Yeah, fair enough. Limestone is a little more pliable. Um, In your recent paper, the conflicting views designing the south transept of Prague Cathedral, you say that Parler's inventive design marked a new chapter in the history of Gothic architecture. What was so revolutionary about the design and what builders what builders and buildings influenced Peter Parler? So I think when you look at the cathedral as a whole, you can look at things like the vaults designs that are rather revolutionary and new. All the designs of the vaults are rather different from one another. There's also the tracery designs, looking at curvilinear tracery and using it in a way that is um, quite interesting because all the windows have, again, a very different design. So there's this sense of experimentation as you go through the building. But there are also smaller things, things like molding profiles inside the building, the way that the triforium zigzags inside of the building. Um, And I think he's definitely influenced by work in Germany, the work of his father. There are already quite revolutionary designs underway in southern Germany. Um, But he's also at the same time looking to France. Um, He obviously takes over the cathedral project from a French architect, Matthias Averas, who dies. And so at that time, when he takes over, much of the grounds plan had already been determined. Um, And so he's taking essentially a French building and bringing German designs to it. But he himself trained in Cologne Cathedral, which is essentially a French building type as well. And so he's got these two things um, in his head already. But then at the same time, there's this huge question of England. Now, this was something that was already published by um, Pevsner, by Paul Crossley, and recently by Christopher Wilson. There was this question of, did Peter Parler come to England? Did he know the experimentations and the projects that were um, happening in the West Country, specifically Wells Cathedral, Exeter Cathedral, places like Audrey St. Mary. These are all places that, strangely enough, have a lot in common with Prague Cathedral. They're also places where there is a lot of experimentation going on um, with interesting structures, 
with vaulted designs, with curvilinear tracery. And so you have these kind of two places, the West Country in England, and then also Prague, where you have quite similar things happening quite far away from each other. Um, and there's this thought that perhaps Peter Parler traveled to the West Country in England. We know that architects had this so-called wunderjahr or like a year to be able to kind of wonder. And maybe he did go as far as England and saw some of the things um, that were happening there. I think what's interesting is that it's not that Peter Parler could see some of these things that are happening in England on two-dimensional drawings. So it's not just tracery designs, it's three-dimensional structures, you know, molding profiles, vault designs, things that you couldn't really translate onto a two-dimensional surface, like an architectural drawing, and then bring it to another country. So that this is why people, scholars really have explored this issue of Peter Parler coming to England and learning from some of the designs in the West Country. You know, he brings it all back to Prague. And so if he does know English architecture, then he's taking English architecture, German architecture, and French Gothic architecture, and kind of combining all those ideas in Prague. And I think from that combination comes this kind of spark of what we you know, often call late Gothic in Central Europe. And so when we look at this South Transept facade, we can see this amazing crest of curvilinear tracery that surrounds this very large South Transept window. The tracery in the window, I should say, is neo-Gothic. And then there's also this one buttress on the right side um, of uh, this curvilinear tracery that actually has a spiral staircase in it. But rather than having solid walls, Peter Parler inserts um, walls made of openwork tracery. And so if someone's in a staircase, you can actually see them if you're standing outside. So this is quite revolutionary. Um, then you have the mosaic lower down. And then below that is the porch, which is actually wide on the outside, but then narrows to accommodate quite a narrow door on the inside to get into the cathedral. And inside of this porch, you also have this really interesting um, vault here with triradials. There are also ribs here that break away from the surface of the wall and are freestanding. So there's quite a lot of experimentation, um, and quite a lot of new things that are going on in just the South Transept. And this is something that really follows on from the kind of experimentation that is happening also inside the cathedral itself. As you were speaking there, I was suddenly thinking, how to put this? I'm thinking um, you see a building like Wells Cathedral with that wonderful scissor arch. And I would look at it and scratch my head and think, well, yes, fine. But how do you build it? Now, Peter Parler presumably did the same. And how did he learn about the structural integrity? So you build this wonderful thing and it doesn't fall over. Did he spend time actually working on these other cathedrals during his year of wandering? It's entirely possible. Um, so we know that he's obviously um, working on Cologne Cathedral. He also works um, alongside his father in Schwäbisch Gmund. Um, so he already has, I think, that base, that understanding of how buildings stand up from an early age. The idea that um, about this uh, Wunderjahr is that it happens just before he comes to Prague, so that Charles IV meets him perhaps in Schwäbisch Gmund or somewhere in, in Germany. And then he maybe does this year right after that before coming to Prague. 
Um, and so by that time, he would have already had that base. And it's something that it would have been passed on to him from the knowledge that his father had. Um, but then during the Wunderjahr, what did happen is that these architects didn't only kind of wander around and look at things. They would come to a site and they would often help out and stay for weeks or months. And that would enable them to not only work alongside these other architects or masons um, in this other country, but they would also be able to earn some wages and um, earn some money for food and, and have somewhere to sleep and you know so on. So it was also a practical thing. I think nowadays we'd call it a gap year. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Do we know if Peter Parlett tried out his designs in advance? And I'm thinking really of that wonderful spiral staircase at the cathedral, which is all open work. Was that a trial? Had he done it before? Um, we just don't know. I mean, with the spiral staircase, I can't think of another open work tracery spiral staircase. Um, there was, when I was doing my PhD, there was this one theory that the Old Town Bridge Tower, which fortifies the Charles Bridge in Prague, um, it has a spiral staircase that's attached to the, to the left side of it, if you're going onto the bridge. The lower part of it would have been solid and then the upper part of it would have been open work spiral staircase, just like the one in the cathedral. And the reason for that is a bit complicated, but there is some tracery inside that staircase that suggests that the upper part of that staircase would have somehow been seen at some point. My theory was actually that there wouldn't have been an open work spiral staircase there. I think that the staircase would have been external up until that second level and then would have changed to an internal staircase. And that's why you couldn't see it. But the interesting thing with the Old Town Bridge Tower is that the vaults of that particular tower is a net vault. So it's the same kind of vault that is also in the cathedral, in the choir, on a huge scale. And so I do think that certain things, certain designs were tried out in advance. And this particular vault, I believe, is dated early, should be dated earlier than the one in the cathedral. And it shows that Peter Parler is trying out some of these more complex designs in smaller spaces before he implements them on such a large scale as the cathedral. And you could also see that in the cathedral itself, because there are smaller chapels and the sacristy and the porch where he's kind of experimenting with vault designs. This is all happening before the vaults in the choir, in the sort of the main vessel of the church. Um, so I think there is that sense of experimentation and trial and error happening in smaller spaces where you don't have the same, where you're not facing the same kind of problems as you would in the choir, where you have large stained glass windows and you're very high up and it's a huge thing that you're building. So, you know, in these smaller spaces, you can be a bit more playful. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense because we all, we all try out things before we actually mm. dive in and go for them. I know from seeing Prague Cathedral and your paper, there is a vast mosaic in the centre of the south transept external wall. In Central Europe at the time, mosaic was most unusual and perhaps rather exotic. But you argue that the mosaic was not an original part of the design. Can you outline the argument for this and what might have instigated the mosaic to be installed? 
Yeah, so we know that there was a window in the center of this wall, uh, so behind the wall that the mosaic um, is on at the moment. Um, and this window was discovered in 1890 when the mosaic was actually taken down during this vast restoration campaign of the cathedral. But also it was recently analyzed by the Getty Institute and they also did a thermographic analysis and that showed that the window that was originally there in the center had been walled up. But we also have documentary evidence of this particular change of design, if you will. Um, we know that in 1368, the portal and certainly the room above it, this crown chamber, uh, must have been finished. And we know that in that year, in 1368, it was consecrated. And this is written in the chronicle of Benesh of Krabice. Um, but we also know from the same chronicle that two years later, the emperor returned from his trip in Italy. This had been his third trip. And um, in the chronicle, Benesh writes, and I quote here, that the emperor had a glass image made in the Greek manner and set in the facade above the porch of Prague Cathedral. It was a splendid but very costly work. And so this was definitely something that was driven by Emperor Charles IV, um, this kind of change, change in the design. We don't know what Peter Parler would have planned on the surface originally, but this is what we, what we have now. That must have been an interesting discussion when the, the emperor came back and said, I want to change to the cathedral. Here's my idea. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the interesting thing um, is that the crown chamber is obviously something that would have kept the crown of Venceslas IV, so the coronation crown, it would have kept these really important, precious things. Um, and so it would have always had a large amount of wall. So we don't imagine that this would have had a large window in it or anything else. It would have always had small windows, but we know that originally it had these three windows and now there are only two. Yes, I suppose they would have needed some light, but a lot of security as well. Exactly, exactly. The mosaic is of the Last Judgment. Is there any symbolic relationship between the image of the Last Judgment, which includes Charles IV and his wife, and the crown chamber behind the wall? Yeah, um, it's a good question, that. And um, I suppose you can make connections between this image and the room behind it, specifically, as you say, because there's, we have Charles IV and his wife kneeling in full regalia there. And you also have this group of Bohemian patron saints, including St. Venceslas. Um, but it's not really something that I looked into specifically. Um, but I think an easier answer here is that this iconography follows a very common pattern of portal decoration that we see throughout medieval Europe, especially in France. So it was quite normal to have the last judgment over the entrance to a cathedral. Exactly. Yeah. Almost as a, as a sign of warning, if you will, or something to contemplate when you're entering a church. An interesting idea. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. With, the, with the mosaic, with Charles and his wife portrayed on either side of the image of Christ, was Charles trying to project himself as part of an ancient lineage, emperor of Rome? 
I think so. I think, um, as I had mentioned already, he visited Italy three times um, before this mosaic was created. And so he would have had time to explore um, lots of places and he must have been inspired by the mosaics that he would have seen in places like Rome and Tuscany as well, but also places like the Palatine Chapel in Aachen, built in the reign of Charlemagne, and the mosaic over uh, one of the portals um, in Saint-Denis in Paris. I think that mosaics um, had this sort of aura of royalty, and Charles must have known that. And as you said in a previous question, they were seen to be kind of exotic, but they weren't exotic just in terms of place, but also in terms of time. And I think they made connections with really important, uh, really ancient places of the past. Charles IV is really well known for his obsession with the past, but also with questioning his place or his role in the history of time. And I think that's what this mosaic really communicates, you know, linking Charles and his dynasty with some of these great dynasties of the past, whether that's the emperors in Rome or whether that's Holy Roman emperors like Charlemagne. It is amazing how influential the Roman Empire still was and still is. Its style and its imagery just continues and continues. Yeah. Um, I know... Your work with Sam Fogg, the London-based art dealers, you have recently been working on a quite amazing architectural drawing from the workshop of Lorenz Leckler, who was almost a century later than Peter Parler. As this is an audio podcast, could you first describe the drawing? And do you think it was influenced by Peter Parler? Yeah, so this is definitely one of my favorite if not the favorite object that we've ever had at Sun Fox since I've been working there and I feel so privileged that I was able to um, work on it and this is a drawing that was acquired by the Metropolitan Museum of Art um, and the drawing depicts a sacrament house which is essentially a tower that's composed of tracery elements sacrament houses like this would have been very common in churches in Germany and in Bohemia and also even east of Bohemia. I mean, and these sacrament houses would have been inside of the church and their function was to store and display the consecrated host. Many of them were humongous. They were so tall that they covered the entire space of the church. So from floor to ceiling. This is also reflected in the drawing itself, which is also very tall. Um, It's on a roll of parchments four sections of parchment to be exact. And when unrolled, it is over three meters long. Um, and then throughout this mi- micro or macro architectural structure, there are sculptures that are positioned on all the different levels of this, of this sacrament house. And yeah, then thinking to this connection between Peter Parler and Lawrence Lechler, Lechler came from Southern Germany. Um, so this was a place that the Parlers really made their mark on. Um, And it was also a place where they lived and worked long after the death of Peter Parler, because we have to remember that Peter Parler had sons and they became master masons and they then continued this legacy in the Holy Roman Empire. And they kind of worked on different projects in Germany, Bohemia and so on. 
And so when you look at the tracery um, and this particular drawing, it really does have these links with the tracery in Prague, which is almost a century earlier. Um, here you have a kind of a skeletal tower that's composed of lots of curvilinear tracery. But the tracery here is obviously something that is quite advanced. It's called astwerk or branch work. Um, because the architectural elements now not only bend and move like those in Prague Cathedral, but here they seem to be so organic that they resemble branches. So that's sort of the connection. It's a kind of a, a legacy, I suppose, that a lot of the German architects look to and build on. The Sam Fogg Gallery has made a short two-minute video about this amazing and beautiful architectural drawing. The link to it is in the notes to the podcast, and I highly recommend you to watch it. Jana, as I have seen the video, I do have to ask, what was the purpose of the drawing? I looked at it and I thought, well, it might be a sales brochure, something made to inspire a potential client. And as a follow-up to that, if the Sacrament House were to have been built, being so tall and slender, would it be able to stand up? So I think your uh, idea that it's a sales brochure is uh, is is on the right track. Um, it's we think it's a presentation drawing, especially because it's on parchment. So this is a really expensive material that they're using because by this point in time, a lot of architectural drawings are actually made on paper already um, because it's available and it's cheaper. When I was working on this particular project, doing research on this drawing, I had several conversations with colleagues that are also architectural historians. Um, and one person that was sort of key in my research was Robert Bork, who then ended up publishing something on this drawing. And the idea that he put forward was that this drawing may have been submitted as a part of a competition to see who will get this commission for this particular sacrament house, wherever it was. And his idea was that it may have been a sacrament house competition uh, for Cologne Cathedral. Um, so Robert Bork's work focuses on the geometry of buildings. And so he did all these complex calculations on the drawing and he figured out, and I can't remember the exact number, but um, figured out how tall he thought it was going to be. And he said, that, well, this was going to be humongous. So if this was as huge as he thinks this is, then there are only a few number of churches in the Holy Roman Empire that could have accommodated such a large thing. And also with the timeline of Cologne Cathedral, it sort of worked. It's an idea, and I think it's a, it's a pretty good one. We don't know that this was ever built, but it may have been. We have to remember that many churches throughout Europe from the Middle Ages were altered and changed in later centuries. Um, and then the second part of your question, which is looking at whether this ever was able to have structural integrity, um, I think, yes, so many of these structures were placed alongside a wall um, and they were also re reinforced with iron. I like the idea of it being part of a competition, call for proposals for a, for a sacrament house. Please submit your plans by the 15th of April. Yeah, and the interesting thing about Cologne Cathedral, we know that there was a sacrament house there. Although it was destroyed, uh, there are a few sculptures that do survive from it. Um, and they are kept now in the Schnittgen Museum in Cologne. Um, and they are consistent with the iconography from our sacrament house. So there is this connection. 
Um, and stylistically, they also look like they were sculpted by someone from southern Germany. Whoever made the Sacrament House in Cologne Cathedral also came from the area where Lawrence Lechler was active. And so you again have this evidence here that these architects are traveling long distances for projects. Yes. Well, I suppose if you're working on cathedrals, there weren't that many. So you did work in different places at different times and traveled between. Um, as a final question, I would like to ask a little more about Lawrence Leckler. He was working in Gothic architecture in southern Germany as the Renaissance was underway in Italy and beginning to spread out. Was he the height of Gothic, the last flowering of Gothic, or simply behind the curve in Gothic? Yeah, I think it's funny because I always think that these categories, Renaissance, Gothic, Baroque, they're just constructs that we as art historians make up to create a nice story, to show a kind of a linear development in, in history or in art. Um, but I think the story of art is always much more complex than that. Um, and so I think that Lechler was someone that in the place and time when, where he was working, his work was seen to be pushing limits, even though those limits may have been different than do those in Italy. But I also think that Italy is quite a special case because Gothic architecture never really took off there. You know, they had their own legacy to live up to, which was the Roman Empire. So lots of classical buildings that are surrounding the Italians all the time. And so they take this as an inspiration. But even in Italy, when we think of Milan Cathedral, which was going up basically at this time, certain patrons have a preference for Gothic. So they are actually looking to, to the north, to Gothic cathedrals in France and in Germany, and they prefer that style to Renaissance architecture. And they actually are bringing architects from Northern Europe to work on their cathedral because they simply lack the skill to build such structures. So it wasn't a universal style everywhere, as it rather tends to be now. Exactly. And didn't Leckler write a pamphlet or a book for his son? Yeah, um, he did. So he wrote this booklet called The Instructions. And this was something that was really interesting because it was published later on, about 100, 150 years after his death. Um, but in the Middle Ages, there was this notion that architects kept their skills very secretive. And it's interesting because in this particular booklet, which was written by, for his son, Moritz, Lawrence Lechler says to Moritz at the beginning of the booklet that he is not to share this booklet with anyone, not even his brothers, unless they become stonemasons. And just going back to the uh, parlors again, you have this great family of stonemasons. So Peter Parler's father, Henry, is a stonemason and Peter Parler's sons become stonemasons. And so we have this idea of these families almost keeping this, this craft within the family, almost like a mafia. And what's also interesting, because this information is kept so secret, um, is that there is this great admiration for architects um, in the Middle Ages, explicitly for the fact that they could imagine buildings and people cannot understand how these very complex structures are being planned. Um, and one great example that I always think of is the moralized Bibles that are produced in the 13th century for Louis IX. 
And on the frontispieces of these Bibles, you get um, God creating the earth. Um, but God is there in the guise of an architect. And so you can see him bending over with his dividers, creating the world as an architect. And I always think that, that just says it all. It's, it tells us how the status of the architect in the Middle Ages changes from mm-hmm. being really just a stonemason to being um, an elite individual um, in the later part of the Middle Ages. And, I, and I've just thought... Going back to the earlier part of our conversation in Prague Cathedral, for someone going into the cathedral, seeing the beautiful gleaming mosaic of the Last Judgment and believing that God created the world, presumably including all the cathedrals, it must have been a very powerful religious moment. Mm. I don't know whether this connection between God and the architect was so explicit. I mean, I think in these moralized Bibles, it's quite a fun thing to sort of think about. Um, But I think what was very explicit in the Middle Ages is that these um, cathedrals, I mean, they would have really been the skyscrapers of their time. Um, You know, there was nothing as big as that being built anywhere else. And so these structures would have towered over the cities. And oftentimes, if you came from a smaller village, that's the first time you ever saw anything, you know, so complex, so ornate, so colorful, so, you know, rich, so tall. So all of that would have really been awe-inspiring. And also, just going back again to these ideas about Renaissance architecture, the difference between Gothic and Renaissance architecture, in my head, is always that Renaissance architecture is meant to be logical. So you look at that building and you kind of, you understand it. Whereas Gothic architecture is really illogical. You come into that building and you feel that this building is mystically, magically somehow standing up. You have this heavy stone vault being supported entirely on stained glass. I mean, that was the the goal of, of Gothic architecture in many instances. Um, and so these buildings are really illogical, thinking about moralized Bibles and, and God helping to support these structures. That's kind of an awe-inspiring thought, really. And on that awe-inspiring thought, I think we have to leave it there. Jana, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and expertise with us today. I hope our audience found it as interesting and informative as I did. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, I- Today, I have been talking to Jana Gaidashova about her research into the Gothic architects. They were the international professional elite class of their period. My thanks to everyone for listening. I hope you found it as interesting and inspirational as I did. And we will all now look at Prague Cathedral with fresh eyes, fresh ideas. Please do look out for the next MISEM podcast in which MISEM members and associates talk about their current or recent research into medieval Central Europe. And if you have research that you and your colleagues are doing and think other MISEM members might like to hear about, please do contact me through the MISEM board or website administrator. I'm Karen Culver for the MISEM podcast. Thank you and goodbye until the next time. Mm-hmm.